Good morning. This series, This We Believe, is designed to ground us in the truth of God. And uh, this is week two. It was appropriate that we began our series, This We Believe, in the Word of God, because that's the source of truth for us. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look together at the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in a little different order on each campus because... The preachers are going to travel with their sermon to the different campuses, and Thomas will be back next Sunday. I'm privileged to be here with you this morning. I don't know if you caught in the song that we just sang, there was a line that said, I don't want to be formed by my feelings. I want to hold fast to what is true. The purpose of this series is to ground us in what is true and we've never needed it more to understand what is ultimate truth and reality. In 2022, a survey was conducted conducted by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research and it indicated that theological convictions of professing evangelical Christians are slipping away from the historic orthodox teachings of the scripture. In fact, 38% of those who responded in this survey just last year said they were more likely to consider religious belief to be a matter of personal opinion rather than about objective truth. That's a big change from two years earlier when 23% people responded that way. According to the researchers, This view makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that they resonate with while at the same time rejecting any biblical teaching that is out of step with their own personal views or the broader cultural values. Part of what we're after in this this time together through summer is to build a foundation of things that we know are true and that shape our life then. And this morning... Um, here's our statement that we're going to be looking at, and I hope you appreciated all of the lyrics of the songs we just sang. But would you like to read out loud together? Let's read it out loud together. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinful life and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. This is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a long statement and there are a lot of things so I have 16 points. No, I don't. I'm going to try to address three parts of this for us this morning. You'll see our mission statement is that we are building Christ-centered communities. We want to be a church that is centered on Jesus. Everything that we do here at Calvary ultimately is to point to Jesus and to anchor our hearts about him. And as we thought about this series, we said, well, what does everybody think about Jesus? If we were to give a survey and say, who is Jesus to you? 
what might people say? And I realize that there are some of us in the room who have been in church for 40 years and others for four, 40 minutes. And maybe this is your first time here and we want to try to build a foundation. What is accurate and what could we say about Jesus? That's what we want to come to understand. And we want to make disciples as a church of Jesus. Not of ourselves, not of the church, but who really follow Jesus and understand. And so it's important because how we believe determines how we live. So we want to build that foundation. If I could just say one more word by way of introduction, given the present realm of our world today, the Bible predicts that in the end of the age, what's going to happen in all of the world is a great deception. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul predicts that at the end of the age, there will be a lawless one who will come into the world under the power and activity of Satan. And he'll have many false signs and wonders. And with all wickedness and all deception, he will deceive those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, as a judgment on the world at the end of the age, God is going to send a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false in order that they would be condemned as those who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I would say that it is urgent in the day in which we live in which there are a lot of things being postulated in the world that are not true, would you agree? And there is all kinds of deception and there is a repository of truth in the word of God that particularly reveals who Jesus Christ is, why did he come into the world and knowing him and knowing who he is changes everything. Now, as you might imagine, there, this statement that's on the screen for you is not the Bible. That is a summary of theological assembly of truths in a, hopefully, an understandable phrase that puts together a couple sentences that summarizes who Jesus is. Therefore, it is a synthesis of what is taught in the Bible, which means that in order for us to dip into it today, we've got to look at a number of different passages. So do you have a Bible with you? On your phone, beautiful, or paper, and there's one in front of you, but you might need this too. I would like to give you a free pen today, <laughs> and it's in the front, and um, I'll give you $5 if you don't already have five of these at your house. <laughs> but the pen is here for you to take notes, because it's impossible for us to go all the way through this whole text this morning. Here you go, Art. There you go. Oh, you already have one. Uh, it's impossible to go through all of this uh, today, but I want to help build a, a structure and a framework, and there is one key text that I want us to turn to. It's Colossians chapter 1. Perhaps no other text in the Bible summarizes this brief statement about Jesus as Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15 through 20, and I'd like to read that for us as we begin. You could turn in your Bible. I'm going to put it on the screen, and we're going to spend some time in this passage. Paul, talking about Jesus, 
says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of God. So let me see if I can take the opening verses of this Colossians 1 passage, beginning of verse 15, and highlight a couple statements, a couple phrases from this that illuminate the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. My hope for you today is that you'll go away thinking I have a bigger picture of who Jesus is, a more clear picture of who he is, and this is why I love him. Because all of this explanation of who Jesus is is meant to do something for us. It's meant to bring us to his, his feet in worship, to receive his forgiveness, and then to live our lives for his glory, which we'll do for, for all of eternity together. The phrase opens up in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. No man has seen God at any time. And if we did see him as he truly is, what would happen? You'd frankly be incinerated. No man can stand before the glory of God. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Image is the Greek word icon. It has this idea of the exact image, a precise copy, a replica of precise proportions. When Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he is saying Jesus is God to us in visible form. You're in your Bible here, just look over at chapter two and verse nine, where perhaps the most clear statement about who Jesus is in all the Bible in one phrase, Colossians 2, nine says, for in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then we read verse 19 of chapter one, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to, to dwell. Jesus is God, and he came into the world to put God on display. You might remember this episode with Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the, to the Father except through me. And one of the disciples, Philip, said to Jesus, oh, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. I can imagine Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Well, if you would just show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you such a long time? Whoever has seen me, can you answer it? Has seen the Father. He is the image 
the exact representation of the invisible God. The second phrase in this verse 15, he is the firstborn of creation. Now this has created some controversy. The word firstborn is the Greek word prototakos. And it basically means the primary one. While it can refer to chronology, firstborn, the real sense is not with chronology, but primogenitor. It is one who is created first in rank. Of all the people ever created, and in this description, there is a sense that the body of Jesus was created through the incarnation. He is the first in rank among all the others. In the survey I cited earlier, 73% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus wasn't created. When it says the firstborn of creation, it means he is the first in rank, the most important, the preeminent one of all human beings. That was a form of uh, Arianism and that was dealt with in the Council of Nicaea. Let me see if I could take these two statements and then make two assertions that you would take away with, the first two of our three assertions. Number one, Jesus is fully God. Jesus came into the world as fully God. This is apparent in the verses that we said, but a lot of people who answer the survey say that Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. It's another heresy, but I would wish for everybody at Calvary to be able to say, no, the Bible affirms clearly that Jesus is God of very God, the second person of the Trinity, and here's how I know it. And I've just given you a number of texts that would help you if you want to capture these. One is Matthew chapter 16. Here Jesus is talking to his disciples. He said, who do men say that I am? Oh, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And this will be the question that every person in this room will have to answer at some time in our life. We'll have to answer, who do you say Jesus is? And what did Peter answer? Peter answers, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now Jesus, hearing from Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, if that were not true, what would Jesus have said? Oh, don't go there. But he didn't. He said, blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed to you that I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God. And Jesus confirmed his deity to his disciples in this circle in the first one. I love this next passage, Philippians chapter 2. There are two sections here. One affirms this point and the next one that we'll talk about. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, and he took upon himself the form of a servant. And Jesus was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And everybody who knows that Jesus did that says, he did that for us. He took upon himself the form of a human being and being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself all the way to the, to the point of death, death on the cross. That points to his humanity, that part. 
But the next verses, I want you to capture. Verse 9, Philippians 2, 9. Because Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant, went to the cross, and died for us, what happened then? Verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that will be the experience in all of eternity that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before Jesus Christ that he is the Lord and it will be in the presence of the Father. Just think about this. Why would a monotheistic, the Lord our God is one, arrange for all of eternity a circumstance in which all of creation is on their knees before Jesus, saying, oh Jesus, you are the Lord for all of eternity when God the Father is there. Why? Jesus is fully God. It's right that Jesus would receive glory in the presence of the Father and worship for all of eternity because he bears the same essence of ontological being that he himself is fully God. Right? That's what's going to happen in eternity. I love that. Okay, a couple others. Are you still with me? All right, First John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Son, full of grace and truth. That's, first, that's John chapter 1. I say, well, what did, what did people think about Jesus when he was a man? What did, what did people say about Jesus and his deity when he walked on earth. This is John chapter five, verse 18. The Jews were seeking to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God, John five eighteen. So the perception when Jesus was here on earth was people were saying, hey, you're calling yourself God. And yes. And it was right. Why? Because Jesus is fully God. The same is true in chapter 10, verse 33, where we read um, the Jews' answers. He said, why are you going to stone me? For what good work that I've done are you going to stone me? And they said, it's not for a good work that you've done, but for your blasphemy. Because being a man, you make yourself to be God. I just want you to see that when you read the New Testament, people who saw Jesus knew what he was claiming about himself, that he and the Father were one. Well, there are many other verses. Hebrews 1 is there for you. Um, but when you think about what, how they thought of him, um, you, you'll remember some of these episodes, perhaps, that the scribes and Pharisees started to question him and said, who is this man who speaks blasphemy who can forgive sins except God alone? What's the answer to that question? No one can. And yet Jesus did. So what does that tell you about Jesus? He's God. 
Another time they were in the sea and the sea was tumultuous and there was a storm all over and Jesus calms the sea and they said, who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who who obeys the sea and the wind? I said that wrong. Who commands the sea and the wind to obey? God does. Sorry. I like that you're still with me because you got it. Okay, I, just, I was just testing to make sure you're with me. Okay, so if you take one thing away from today, I, I, I would love for every person at Calvary to be able to say, somebody says, well, who do you think Jesus is? He is fully God. God in the flesh. Secondly, he is fully human. He is fully human. We read John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He our statement says he is incarnate, he became enfleshed. Galatians 4:4 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Bible affirms that Jesus is fully a human being. 1 Timothy 3.16, and we'd say, well, this is weird. How is anybody else like Jesus? Nope, no one else is like Jesus. No one is fully divine and fully human. And the way Paul put it in 1 Timothy 3.16, great, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It's, it's a mystery that Jesus was manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. You just put that down for later. It's a mystery. I get it. People have had a hard time trying to say, who is this person who has two fully unique human and divine natures that coexist without conflict in one form? We already looked at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Um, He emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant. Jesus somehow set aside his divine prerogatives so that he didn't always act as God. Sometimes he he restrained his divine exercises in order to experience, think of it, in great humiliation, hunger, fatigue, sorrow. He experienced all of those as a genuine human being. That's why Hebrews says that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He made himself like us in every respect. What a great savior he is. There is one God and one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. He's fully man. So if somebody says to you, who is Jesus? It'd be great if you could say, well, there's two things I know for sure. He was fully God and he was fully human. He was uncreated. He always existed. And he was incarnate. He came into our world to us. In fact, someone has put it this way. Jesus is not the ideal man who reached up to God, but he was God incarnate who reached down to us. That's who he is. He's the image of the invisible God, which means he is God who came into our world, lived as a human, died a real death, raised from the dead, has gone into heaven, 
and he now pleads for us in heaven. Let's go back to our text. Verse 18, we'll see the purpose of why Jesus came according to Paul. Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the body, the church. So when we say this, we don't say there are, there are no there are people who are responsible for leading Calvary Bible Church. But in our hearts and in our minds, we think this church is for Jesus. Jesus is the one who leads us today and into the future and until he comes again. He is the head of the church of all believers all around the world. He is the beginning, which speaks to his eternality that he always existed. He's the firstborn from the dead. I would underscore to you the firstborn is another way of saying he is the most important in rank of those who were resurrected. Because there were people who were resurrected. He resurrected Lazarus. But he was raised from the dead, and he's called the firstborn from the dead. Well, he wasn't the firstborn in chronology. Lazarus, among others, who were raised. What is firstborn? He's first in rank of those who have been raised from the dead. And because he lives, we too can live. Because he, Lazarus died again. Jesus lives forever. He's firstborn from the dead. And for what purpose? End of verse 18, everybody, that he might. Okay, I lost you. Come on back. What's the purpose of all this? That he might be preeminent. That he might be in the first place as our Savior and our Lord. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now there's another statement in our statement of faith that I thought about trying to include today, but I gave up. And we'll have to save it for another time, but it's statement number five that talks about the work of Christ. I want to just focus today only on the person of Christ. But Paul summarizes it beautifully in these six verses. Let's go back to the original statement, the first slide that we looked at. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and man, one person in two natures. He's the promised Messiah. He was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's how deity and humanity can be put together by the virgin birth through Mary. It's why Jesus was born without sin. And all of us, born by a male and a female, through natural reproduction, are born with a sinful nature, and Jesus was not. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, rose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and you know that, right? If you know that, amen? He rose again. Okay. Time only permits us to take this last phrase, which I'd like to concentrate on, and that is that he sits at the right hand of God as our high priest and advocate. And if I were to send you out today, I would want you to be sent out saying, this is what I know about Jesus. In its most truncated form, he is fully God. He is fully man. And where he is today is at the right hand of the Father as a high priest and an advocate for me. What is an advocate? An advocate is someone who comes alongside another to help them. The best, perhaps, sense we have is a defense attorney. I remember a number of years ago being called in as a pastor to help a young man uh, in our church who had um, a misunderstanding with the law. 
and he asked if I could help him with some recommendation of an attorney. So I had a friend who was an attorney, and I told him the situation. He said, I'd be happy to help. And he went to court, and um, he was going to pro bono help this young man who was in trouble. And I remember being in there as an observer, and there was a defendant, and there was the attorney, and there was the judge, and the judge started to speak to the defendant, and it was, it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a judge when you know you had an infraction. And I remember the defense attorney standing up and speaking for like five minutes and just eloquent, confident, helpful, rescuing. He was guilty. He had a modest penalty, satisfied the requirements of the law, but he didn't have to do anything because the attorney was there to do it for him. That's an advocate. Come alongside to help. That's the lesser to the greater is that Jesus is in heaven as our advocate for us. And he's a high priest because he intercedes and prays for us and accomplished our redemption. Here are the verses that help us here. Jesus as our advocate. Hebrews chapter 10 says, when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time when his enemies shall be made his footstool. That Jesus' work on the cross is finished, everybody, and by a single offering, he perfected all, for all time those who are sanctified. That's a verse that just indicates Jesus did the work on the cross, and when the work on the cross was over, he could sit down, and that's where he is today. Hebrews chapter 7 says that the former priests in the old sacrificial system of the Old Testament were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. This is just a statement in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, that the Old Testament priests who made sacrifice of lambs, what would happen to them after 25 years of service? They died, and they had to be replaced. And the writer of Hebrews is making the case that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues on forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for us today. Think about that. Jesus is praying for us today. Where is he? At the right hand of God as a defense attorney. And what is he saying in that position as a defense attorney? Oh, no, I paid for that. Oh, I paid for that sin. That brother or sister's in Christ. He's in me. She's in me. I paid for that. And I'm praying for them. That's Hebrews chapter 7. Romans chapter 8, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, rather was raised, is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Okay, these are the ways I would say this is a great text to have for you in your mind. If anyone does sin, 1 John 2, 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. How good is our Savior? Fully God, fully man, today, ministering to us from the right hand of the Father. Let me close with the last verse. I'm going to put it on the screen. 
Here's the last verse from Hebrews that sort of underscores he is our high priest in heaven. He is our advocate, beseeching the Father on behalf of us here. And this is the way the writer of Hebrews says, since we have a high priest that passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. Listen, there's a lot of pressure for Christians to drift away from Jesus in our day. Would you agree? Let's hold fast. There are a lot of people who are saying to us, Jesus isn't who he says he is. You need to know he is who he says he is and to hold fast to your confession no matter what is coming down the pike in this crazy world in which we live. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, which means to say, we do have one who can, and he does. He is one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here's your go-away statement. Let's read the last verse together, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. When we build a foundation of who is Jesus in our life, I hope that what you'll have in your mind more than anything else is that Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, praying for us, and you can go to him whatever is going on in your life. And the time that you need him most is the time you can go to him most easily. Sometimes bad things happen in our life so that we would turn to Jesus. Imagine that. But that's what this says. In your time of need, I've been a pastor a long time and I've been with people who have suffered unbelievable tragedy in their life. And they'd walked with Jesus for their whole life and then the world falls apart, they lose a loved one, a child, a spouse, or something terrible. And I've watched the faith of people who have trusted that Jesus is the son of God. He's fully God, fully man. He is who he says he is. And their world crushingly collapses. And they say, God is good. And I say, how can they say that? You know how? It is their time of need and they go to the throne of grace and the loving Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father is there praying for them. You need to know that Jesus is that. He is worthy of praise. Remember that image we talked about earlier where in all of heaven, people are gonna be bowed down before saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. We should say that now every day of our life. He is Lord. He is fully God. He is fully man. He has accomplished our salvation. He is in heaven praying for us. He's worthy of your whole life. Let's pray together. God, our Father, I pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified in the way we think, live, worship, work, Oh, Lord, I pray today for your grace in our hearts that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength. And it would be an anchor for us to know that Jesus is this preeminent, first in rank being who has saved us and brought us into relationship. We just want to say your name is great and we want to be people who praise you, worship you, lift up our voices with great praise that you are who you say you are. To you be praised as we sing now and as we live this week, may Jesus Christ be praised. In his name we pray, amen.
Now let's stand together and put it to music.